Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey everyone, now before we get started, we wanted to remind you that this is part two of a two-part series. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, stop right now and go back and listen to the Sarah Holbert episode, which was on last week. And also after this episode, make sure you catch Pat Bastiglione's series, Deadly Recall, tonight, April 22nd at 10, 9 central. And on Deadly Recall tonight, they're showing an episode about this story, So if you want to see pictures of the people involved, crime scene photos, that's where you should go. Thanks, everyone. Enjoy the show. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. See it on the news. See it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. Uh, when they arrested him. But at that point, we did not know, or the last thing on our mind was that she was killed by a serial killer. We thought that, you know, it had to have been just a random accident and someone panicked, you know, they party too hard or, or something of that nature. They they panicked and, and just, we did not know at, the, at that point that uh, she was taken from us by a serial killer. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting so far away from Alexis Linkletter and even farther away from Billy Jensen. And you know what? Billy, with his handlebar mustache that he has right now, has a very important announcement to make. That's right. I am wearing a handlebar mustache. It's only for the day. It's great. But, uh, you know, on on the Murder Squad, <laughs> we did a virtual art show and we had 90 artists draw or, or do uh, glass or stained glass and all this stuff that was Murder Squad inspired. And I thought, and there were a couple people that said that they were commenting like, oh, Alexis and Jack should be in there too. When we were talking about somebody did us as the Scooby-Doo gang or something. So what I would love to see is anybody that's artistically inclined um, of the, uh, the firsties to send us your art. And then maybe we'll do like a happy hour art show at some point. Yeah. I Maybe think next that, week or the week after. Yeah. Yeah. We've been wanting to do, we did a virtual happy hour when quarantine first started. And I think that we wanted to do another one, but we're trying to figure out the logistics of how to do it. And the art show for murder squad went so well. And we've already had firsties send us a lot of cross stitch artwork and stuff like that. So what a perfect time Legos, for everybody. Lego to- statues of us. Legos. That's right, we had Legos. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's a perfect time. If you guys are bored, if you want to, you know, throw something together, we'd love to have a little virtual art show. It'd be super cute. Yeah. And then also, we'll interview you. If it's good, I'll buy it. Name yeah. a pr- if it's yeah, good, exactly. I'll want one. Yeah. I'll, I'll buy it. It's not like we want them for free. I'll pay for a print. 
We want to support. No, we're not asking artists. for these personally at all either. Of we're course. just going to show them off within our within our Zoom chat. But also, we might purchase one. So. No, and we'll also and we'll also promote what if you have a store, if you're an artist, if you're a tattoo artist. There was a lot of tattoo artists that submitted things. We'll promote your stuff. We'll tag you on our Instagram and uh, you know uh, support you on our Insta stories and everything. It's just it's just a way to to promote everybody and think about the local artists because I know that artists are hit as well because artists a lot of times they sell their stuff at uh, at art shows and Auction. at you know auction anything and nobody's buying anything now so i really want to try to support them even like south by southwest had this thing called flat stock and i used to buy like a ton of art there and obviously south by was was canceled so i couldn't buy any art and also this goes beyond just you know painting and drawing and stuff like that one of our firsties made us the official uh, first degree cocktail. So get mm-hmm. creative, whatever you guys want to do. We're so excited. And uh, we'll give you more details as kind of time goes along. And if you guys start submitting stuff, so very excited, but uh, Billy, what's today? You know what? There's kind of slim pickings today, there but is. I will say it's chemists celebrate the earth day and we need chemists more than ever to get us out of this mess. It's also Girl Scout Leader Day, too. Were either of you brownies or Girl Scouts? I was Absolutely a brownie. Not. Hmm. Were you? I was. What's the difference between a brownie and a Girl Scout? Brownie is just a baby Girl Scout. It's also National Jelly Bean Day, too. Ooh. I don't and like jelly beans. beans. Jelly beans were really bad, and we just got we got over Easter. The the jelly beans that I grew up with were bad, and then the jelly beans got like that real flavor, like the buttered popcorn flavor. Jelly bellies? Love that. Jelly bellies, yes. They changed the game. All right. Well, uh, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. On last week's episode, the body of 27-year-old Sarah Holbert had been found at a Nashville truck stop in June of 2007. Her body had been posed grotesquely. She'd been sexually assaulted. Her small kiss tattoo had been removed and taken as a trophy. Murder Squad detective Pat Pistiglione and his partner, Lee Freeman, were assigned to the case. Pat was able to rule out those personally connected to Sarah, and using ballistics evidence was able to connect Sarah's case to that of 48-year-old Samantha Winters and then a third victim in Alabama. This investigation spearheaded by Detective Pat Pistiglione revealed the work of a terrifying and active serial killer, a prolific murderer that many of you have likely never heard of, who, like a phantom, would blow through states in the night and prey on women who were down on their luck. And he thought no one would care, that no one would miss them. But he was wrong. Once again, we have Detective Pat Pistiglione and Sarah Holbert's sister, Roxy, to help us navigate this chilling story. One after the next, Pat identified additional victims whose lives were stolen by the killer he was hunting. He was sure it was the same killer, but he didn't know the killer's name. Each case exhibited nearly identical MOs, but more importantly, each victim had been killed with the exact same gun. 
Pat learned that months before Sarah was found at the Nashville truck stop in January of 2007, a 43-year-old mother from Atlanta named Deborah Ann Glover was found murdered in Suwannee, Georgia motel parking lot between a trailer and a privacy fence. She had been killed by a single 9mm gunshot wound to the head. Then a month after Deborah Ann Glover had been found in Georgia, 43-year-old Sherry Drinkard was found stripped naked, shot once in the head with a 9mm weapon, and dumped in a snowbank at a Gary, Indiana truck stop. A trucker spotted her snow-covered body while he was working on his truck. Indiana police believed that she had been there for two weeks, and the delay in discovery was blamed on a winter storm which had dumped several inches of snow. Then, of course, there was 48-year-old Samantha Winters, who was found June 6th, and Sarah Holbert, who was found June 26th. On July 1st, 2007, a 44-year-old named Lucille Carter was found shot to death at a Birmingham, Alabama truck stop. Like Samantha, Lucille was found nude, placed in a trash can, with a plastic bag taped around her head. Pat is literally hunting this guy as he's still hunting and killing women. Comparing the dates side by side, Pat makes a troubling observation. The serial killer is not only actively still killing, he, it's becoming more frequent as time progresses. So he's ramping up. So now that Pat knows that this killer is a trucker, he tries to think outside the box in terms of methods of tracking this guy down. So he reaches out to an FBI agent friend of his named Jane Stairs, who's based in Quantico, Virginia. She works within the FBI's Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, and she has access to resources that aren't available on a state level. Pat wants to access the various GPS services that long-haul trucking companies utilize to track their drivers. And it's common for companies to do this for a number of different reasons, including safety and keeping their drivers accountable and on schedule. And while these GPS companies are private, the FBI can expedite securing subpoenas for companies operating on a national level. Pat hopes that using GPS data history, he can pinpoint the trucks that were at the North Street truck stop on the night that Sarah Holbert was dumped between 1220 and 1250 a.m. So the GPS data is collected and sifted through and Pat instructs his team to track down and question each and every one of the drivers. They narrowed it down to about 100 drivers, starting with those registered in Nashville and then moving outward to the peripheral states. When Pat ultimately receives an update on the 100 trucks that they tracked down from the GPS data, the news he gets is disappointing for two reasons. First is that only a few of the drivers have been located and they couldn't provide any useful information. And second, Pat learns that while it's an industry standard for long-haul trucks to have GPS, it's not required. So it's possible that countless trucks who were in the area during the time Sarah's body was dumped didn't show up on the list at all. So the pressure is really on now because Pat knows if this guy isn't caught quickly, more women will die. And at this point, it's worth mentioning that this killer is not only escalating in boldness and frequency, but he's showing no signs of stopping. So Pat has observed the methods of countless serial offenders. And this killer's lust for killing is particularly insatiable. Within a few short months, he's killed six women at truck stops in Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia, and Indiana. And that's just what people know about. There was likely additional victims to what's been uncovered at this point. But this guy was still just a complete ghost. Besides his M.O. and the suspected color of his truck, they knew nothing else about him. So the question is, 
how exactly was Pat going to catch him? Okay, so let's go over what we know about this killer so far. We know he's a trucker. We know that he kills women with a gun. So this sort of gave me pause. You don't really hear about that many serial killers killing women and sexually assaulting them and ultimately killing them with a gun. I mean, typically this happens with strangulation, with a knife, or during a beating. Okay, so what I do think is interesting is we talk a lot about, I mean, generally when people think about serial killers, they do think of an archetype. They think of like a lady prowler, a lady killer, someone who will strangle you, someone who will do this or that. And clearly this is not that, in that this killer is not really getting his probably sexual gratification, if he is a sexual thrill killer, from the murder itself. He's more into the power where he's assaulting before and assaulting after death, perhaps. But the killing is more just sort of uh, an implication of the other things that he wants, where this woman can't walk out of here alive. I'm going to do it with a gun. You know, it's the cleanest. It's the it's I'm going to place I'm going to get another thrill from placing the body in a way and desecrating her that way. So I think the murder is uh, secondary in this particular case. The archetypal serial killer, as we all know, is Jack the Ripper. And what Jack the Ripper does is, you know, he's he's ripping. He, he's, he's using a knife. You see Bundy and Bundy is using um, uh, uh, blunt force trauma and strangulation. It, this is this is odd. This is odd for a sexual uh, uh, homicide, physically sexual homicide that ends with a gunshot. All right. So let's get back to the serial killer that Pat is hunting. So right now it's the morning of July 12th, more than two weeks after Sarah had been found at the North First Street truck stop. Pat decides to return to the truck stop scene because while reviewing the surveillance footage from the truck stop surveillance cameras had been really helpful, there were so many different vantage points that were obstructed. So Pat wants to go in person to make sure that there's nothing that he could have missed. So Pat is sitting in his car idling at a traffic light just outside of the truck stop. And out of the corner of his eye, he notices something. It's a massive long-haul truck that pulls out in front of him and rolls slowly past. And it's yellow and has a purple stripe spanning its length. This was July 12, 2007, and I asked one of my detectives, the the lead detective on the case, Lee Freeman, to meet me down at the truck stop. I said I wanted to go to where the video cameras were located, and I wanted to see the view from where the cameras were versus what we were watching on, on our uh, video equipment in the office. I wanted to see the, what it looked like up close. And I also said, let's double, also double-check the fuel tickets. Let's make sure we didn't miss anything from June the 25th and June the 26th of 2007, just to make certain. So the plan was Detective Freeman was going to leave first, and I had some paperwork to finish, and I was going to meet him down there within 30 minutes or so. He leaves, um, and I get ready to leave. I get in my car, and I start heading down there when he calls me. He said, uh, I got the fuel, you know, I checked the fuel tickets. We're all good. He said, you don't you don't need to come down if you don't want to. I, so for some reason, I said, well, I said, do me a favor. Just stay there. Hang there. I said, I'm on the way. Uh, I'm going to look at those camera angles. And I went, went over around through the back road toward the truck stop, through the back entrance of the truck stop. And I turned onto a street called North First Street, and I was headed literally toward the back side of the truck stop. And coming toward me, I saw a yellow tractor trailer. It was a, a tractor pulling a box-type trailer coming toward me that looked remarkably similar to the one that we saw on the video. Now, was it the same truck? I had no idea. Um, you know, same color, same style truck, yes. 
Um, so I saw the truck coming toward me, and it slowed down. I couldn't tell if it actually came out of the truck stop or it had driven past the truck stop. I suspect that it drove past the truck stop, but I'm not certain. So when it pulled, it coming toward me, I saw it put its left blinker on to make a turn into an area where there was really no reason for a tractor trailer to go down. So I stopped. I let that tractor trailer make the turn, and I turned behind him. And that's when I called Detective Freeman, and I told him, I said, you know, I said, hey, I'm behind this yellow tractor trailer. It looks really similar to the truck that we had seen on the video. The night Unger was killed, I said, I'm going to follow him. And I don't know where he's going or what the deal is, but I'm going to follow him. And I gave him the information off the truck. God forbid, if in case something happened, he would have the information. I gave him the name of the company. I gave him the tag number on the truck. So the truck circles the block, goes one block, um, takes a right, goes another block, takes a right. And then he ends up back on the very same street where I had first seen him. So he basically circled the block. And this time he tur literally turns into, he turns left into the truck stop and pulls onto the north side of the truck stop, nose first. He pulls straight in. Typically, tractor trailers, when they go into rest for the night or whatever, they back in. And then when they leave, they can easily pull out. This particular tractor trailer pulled, no pulled nose first in. And when he pulled in, I pulled to his left, and, um, you know, it's almost similar to a traffic stop. I kind of was behind him, and I told Detective Freeman, uh, who had already left the truck stop, I said, I'm going to approach the truck, no big deal, I'm going to approach and try to talk to this guy. So I get out of my car, and I walk up to the door, and I noticed that he had already pulled. As soon as he pulled in, he pulled the, the curtains on the truck. Like when you go to sleep, you can pull the curtains all around like a camper. You pull them all around on the windshield, on the side windows, so no one can see inside the truck. Well, he did that. I didn't know if there was one person inside that truck or five people. I had no idea. So I walked up to the truck. Engine was still running, and I banged on the door, and I had my ID, my badge and ID in my one hand, and nobody nobody responded. I banged on the door a second time, uh, you know, maybe 15 seconds later or so. I saw the curtain pull back, and I saw this guy look down at me, and I hold my ID up. I said, hey, uh, you know, told him who I was. I said, would you mind stepping down here so I can talk to you for a minute? And a few seconds later, the, the door uh, the door opens up and he jumps down, and his shirt was all the way opened, uh, all the way down down to his belt. It was opened, and he had no shoes on. Uh, he had socks on. You know, he was arrogant initially when when you know like he came jump down like you know like what do you want kind of thing, and he pretended he was stretching like I had woken him up, and I can only assume that he didn't realize I had just followed him in there. So, you know, we had some brief conversation. I said, hey, you know, we're looking for a truck that looks similar to this truck. He said, there's a thousand trucks like this. I said, you're right, there are a thousand. I said, I've noticed that. I said, would you mind if I ask if there's any identification on you? So he hands me his driver's license, and that's the first time I see his name is Bruce Mendenhall. Bruce Mendenhall. Pat has never heard this name before, so he hands the license back to him. He looked, you know, I said, I guess like a typical trucker. He didn't, didn't look like a tough guy or anything like that, just... You know, had glasses. I think he was wearing glasses at the time. So this man standing before him is 59 years old, and he looks like a caricature of a trucker. He has a beer belly, sloping shoulders, trudging gait, big glasses, and sunken, hollow eyes. When Pat asked, Bruce said that he hasn't been at this particular truck stop since a few months back in May. I asked him about uh, would he mind giving any DNA, you know, by this time my detective had shown up and, and he was walking up, up to me and I was already in conversation with uh, Mendenhall, had his driver's license in my hand, and uh, he agreed, he, uh, believe it or not, he agreed verbally first to give DNA and then he signed a, uh, a waiver where he literally gave his DNA, my detective had swabs in his car, 
he went and got the he went and got the, uh, the mouth swabs and he swabbed the Mendenhall's mouth. And um, uh, you know, I, I may have told this before too. Um, I, I know for sure that a little voice, a little voice told me, absolutely said to me, um, whispered in my ear somehow, said, "Don't don't let him leave without looking in his truck." And um, I'll never forget that. And uh, I said to him, I said, "Do you mind if I look, uh, have a look in your truck?" And he said, he asked me if I was going to tear it up. I said, no, I'm not going to tear it up. So he, he waves his hand up, like, go ahead. Now, before I got into the truck, I had noticed blood. He had blood on the fingernail. Uh, it looked to me to be blood on his fingernails. Um, on his left hand, I noticed some what I thought to be blood. Also on the driver's door that was open, I could see a few drops of blood on the door. You know, that may or may not mean anything. You know, it could, it could be absolutely... Uh, you know, nothing to it. Uh, I didn't know that, but I did see the blood drops on the door and the blood on his um, fingernail. So I'm thinking the blood from his finger maybe is what caused the blood drops on the door. I didn't know. Well, I didn't want to say anything to him at the time about the, ask him about the blood on his fingers because I was afraid that he would he would get rid of it. So I didn't say anything. But, but my level of suspicion began to go up just a little bit uh, because of the blood. And I climbed up into the truck and I noticed a roll of black electrical tape. Um, and I knew some of the victims had been uh, electrical tape was used. I also noticed a, a knife uh, was hanging uh, on the dashboard. I noticed the knife was there. Maybe meaningless, may not mean a thing, I didn't know. Then I went to the back of the truck, which is a sleeper compartment, and um, there was a bag behind the uh, the driver's seat. There was a, uh, a big, like a plastic trash bag, like you'd have in your kitchen. And I opened it up and, and I looked inside the bag and, and I was, I mean, I was completely surprised. I can see a bunch of blue napkins, the kind of napkins you might get at a truck stop or when you wipe the windshield with. And I noticed many of them in there, and they all appeared to be blood-soaked. And the blood appeared to be fresh, wet blood. Not not dry blood, but wet blood. I could see um, some women's shoes, uh, croc shoes. I could see some women's clothing, what appeared to me to be women's clothing. Um, I could see a lot of other things in there, but mainly the, the bloody napkins and, and, and that type of thing. And then I saw a pair of shoes that were next to the bag, and I picked up the shoes and I turned them over and looked at them. And the shoes, the print on the bottom of the shoe looked very similar to the print that was found on the crime scene very near our victim Sarah Holbert's body. But now we have a, a shoe print that looks similar to what we found on the crime scene. I have a bag full of blood. I didn't think this was our victim's blood, and the reason why I didn't think so is because this blood was still wet. I mean, this blood was literally still wet. So I, I came out from around the seat, and I, I asked him, I said, hey, uh, Bruce, I said, what's the story on the on the bag full of blood? He told me he cut his leg. He said, in and out of the truck. He said, I, I cut my leg getting in and out of the truck. So, okay, that's reasonable. I said, can you show me the cut? So he pulled up his pant leg, and of course he showed me his leg, and there was no cut, no scar, no scab, and he showed me his leg, and there was literally nothing there. So at this point, Mendenhall comes up into the truck, and he's standing in the truck with his left arm on the steering wheel, and, and I'm chatting with him. He'd already told me that there was no weapons in the truck, and we're having this, you know, conversation, um, and I said to him, you know, just sitting there, sitting on the mattress, uh, that the sleeper mattress, I said to him, I said, Bruce, I said, is this, is this the truck we've been looking for? And he looked at me with his dead stare. He really did. He, he didn't He didn't answer me. So I asked him that same question three times. And after the third time, he just shrugged his shoulders and he says, uh, you know, if you say so, if you say it is. I said, well, I, I'm not saying it is, Bruce. I'm asking you if it is. So he did the same thing. He shrugged his shoulders and he wouldn't say anything else. Then I asked him a follow-up question. I said, Bruce, I said, are you the guy we've been looking for? And he did the exact same thing. I had to ask him the same question three times. After the third time, he shrugged his shoulders and he said, if you say so. 
So and then I said, what about a gun, Bruce? Do we have a gun in this truck or not? He said, yeah, we do. So at this time, I felt like we had enough evidence to arrest him. And I, I asked, told Detective Freeman I, uh, after he got back down out of the truck, um, I had Detective Freeman arrest him. All right, so there is a lot to unpack here. Let's start with the fresh blood that Pat found in the cab of Bruce's truck. And, and he, he was arrogant with me. You know, he was arrogant in a way, um, but at the same time, he I, I think his brain might have been racing to come up with some sort of an excuse as to why all that blood was in the it was in the bag. He came up with um, he was in the truck last night with a with a girl from Indianapolis, and she cut her hand. And she bled all over the place, and that's what that's what created that blood. Okay, well, that's a lot of blood. I mean, there was a whole lot of blood in this bag. And, um, you know, further investigation, there was a cell phone in there. There was an ATM card in there. And once we found the ATM card, there was a name on the, on the card, Karma Purpura. It turns out that this blood belonged to Karma Purpura. And Pat connects with Indiana authorities, and it turns out that no one had even realized that Karma Purpura had gone missing because she'd only been killed a dozen or so hours before Pat's encounter with Bruce. We contacted Indianapolis Homicide, and I asked them if they could locate Karma Papura or family members or whatever, and they located the sister, Jessica. And Jessica was able to say that I spoke with my sister, Karma, last night. Okay, what number did you speak with her at? And we got the phone number, and they called, and, and, that, and that was the phone that was in the bag. So we knew that that phone she had spoken with the sister on last night was now in the bag inside Bruce Mendenhall's truck. In addition, we got the Indianapolis homicide guys to uh, go to the different banks. Uh, she tried to make three withdrawals, and we didn't know if it was a female or a male, or it might have been Bruce Mendenhall for all we knew. So they went ahead and they um, they pulled uh, all the three videos, and they said it was a female in all three videos. I said, okay, can you give me the clothing description of what this female was wearing? Well, they gave me the clothing description, and that's precisely what was in the bag that I was looking down into. So we had the victim's clothing, we had the victim's ATM card, we had the victim's cell phone, and we felt very strongly that we had the victim's blood. Obviously, we didn't have the victim herself. Um, As it turns out, the the victim was missing from Indianapolis, and no one, um, up until our phone call, really knew that she was missing. It was later revealed that Karma had been picked up by Mendenhall at the Flying J truck stop in Gary, Indiana. There at the same truck stop where Sarah Holbert had been found weeks prior, Bruce Mendenhall was arrested on suspicion of murder. Once I found the blood in the bag, and and I knew this was a bag full of evidence, you know, that could have, who knows what's in this bag. We had victims, potential homicide victims, stuff right inside this bag, you know, DNA possibly, who knows. So I stopped my search, immediately stopped my search once I found that stuff in the bag, and we impounded the entire truck. Not just the tractor, but the trailer. So, I, I mean, emotionally, I, I felt like I wanted to make sure that we did this right. I wanted to make sure that there were no mistakes, no wiggle room for the for the suspect kind of thing. Um, you know, when he got out of the truck, he had made mention to me that uh, he was a diabetic. This day was particularly hot, and, um, you know, I didn't want him to use that as any kind of an excuse. So I had one of the patrol guys take him to the hospital to get him checked out to make sure he was okay. They did that. They checked him out. They said he was okay. And that's when I had him sit in the cab in the front seat of my car because I had the air conditioner on. Well, I wasn't going to put him in the front seat of my car with the engine running without someone else being in there. So I got in the car and he began to make these unsolicited comments. And 
and he eventually said, um, you know, he named these other two guys. Said they're, they're the ones that did the killings, and he, you know, plural, you know, with an S. And I asked him, uh, okay, I said, um, you know, I'm not asking you any questions. I said, but would you be willing to? to tell me that downtown. And he said, yes, he agreed. He'd tell me that downtown. He's going to tell me the story of the real killers and, and how they how they did, how they killed all these female victims. All right. All right, Bruce, you okay? Yeah, you're sleepy. How's that water? Is that good and cold for you? Yep. Okay. Now, we talked a few minutes earlier, Bruce, and, and, and you mentioned to me that, that you wanted to... Uh, give your version, your story. He wanted to tell us exactly what, what occurred and why it occurred. And just a couple of minutes earlier, you even mentioned in front of Leah and myself, you volunteered the information that the body was displayed out at the truck stops of America for the purposes of you wanted uh, the police to figure out who's doing this. Is that mm -hmm. true? Okay. Today's date is uh, July the 12th, year 2007. Uh, I'm Sergeant Pat Stiglione. Detective Lee Freeman is also present. We're in the process of interviewing Bruce D. Mendenhall, M-E-N-D-E-N-H-A-L-L. Everybody loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. So it's going to take you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. I'm really feeling this because Lex and I both are really like into Gatsby stuff right now. So I am loving the vibe of this game. And you're going to step into the role as June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. It's perfect for all of the firsties out there. There's mystery, danger, and romance as you search for hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. And you can customize your very own luxuries of state island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Okay, so listen, we are busy ladies over here on the first degree. And when I have a moment of free time, I don't want to spend it grocery shopping. I want to spend it rotting on the couch and watching reality TV. And that is why I love Thrive Market. So Thrive Market is a go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials. And the convenience of getting everything online then quickly shipped to my doorstop is such a huge time saver. So Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They actually restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So you can go on their website and use their filters to suit any of your lifestyle needs. If you're allergic to a certain ingredient, if you just don't want to have it in your life, that's why Thrive Market is so awesome. So whether you're looking for organic snacks for your kids or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free pantry essentials, you can curate your own shopping experience with just a few clicks. I love this so much because I don't want to read every ingredient when I go to the grocery store. It's so easy to do it online, honestly, when I'm rotting on the couch. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash first for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash first. Thrivemarket.com slash first. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, or cleanup needed. There's over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. 
Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Get started today and get after your goals. Plus, Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. For me, I was really struggling to get enough protein. I always do. But Factor's meals are protein-packed, and they're so good. And it's so easy when I'm slammed busy working in the middle of the day to just have lunch right there, not needing to do anything, except heat it up. Head to factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 and use code DEGREE50 to get 50% off. That's code DEGREE50 at factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 to get 50% off. Once Pat has Bruce in an interrogation room, his admissions were baffling. If you can be as specific as you can, date-wise, time-wise, who you were with, that type of thing. Date-wise, I, I couldn't tell you. I went into the TA, got me something to eat, come back out, and this lady was sprawled out in the back. I said, you guys, what the hell? They go, it's your problem, not ours. And they got out and left. Okay, and, and what did you do? Well, proceeded to clean the mess up. Okay, be as specific as you can with us and give us details as to exactly what you did. Well, she didn't have clothes on. It was just like here and there and on the floor, blood everywhere. They uh, had bags over her head. So I figured she, you know, they did something to her head. And I figured it was with my gun. The girl that was killed at truck stops here in Nashville was shot to death with your rifle? Yeah. Okay. Figured and, it. Okay. Because I didn't see them with nothing. Okay. And the two guys that approached you approached you at truck stops just west of town? Well, they do it all the time. I don't know. Okay. You don't know these guys? Yes, I know. Okay. How did they know you were at the truck stops? I, that's what I don't know. In Nashville? They, they meet me everywhere. Okay. So what did you do specifically? with the victim to help get you caught or get them caught? What did you do? I dumped your body there in behind the trailers. Mm -hmm. Right out in plain view. Well, when you say plain view, describe specifically what you did with the body. I laid her out. Okay. You know, dropped her down the ground and left. How was her body positioned? I have no idea. Was she on the stomach? Was she on the side? Was she on her back? She was laying on her back. Okay. Was she white, black? Okay. Now you indicated earlier when when you were telling me about the guys that uh, they had sex with her. Okay. They were laughing about it. Okay. The question is, did, did Bruce have sex with her? No. Okay. So after some nudging, Bruce admits that, yeah, Sarah Holbert was killed in his truck, but then he insists that he actually wasn't the person that killed her. He puts the blame on two other truckers that he knows and says it was them and that they just leave bodies in his truck for him to deal with. You get out of your truck and you do what? Go inside the, the rest, restaurant or the restaurant? Yeah, I'm going to buy me a sandwich, come back out to leave. When you come back out to leave, the girl is now in your truck and she's now dead. Right. Okay. 
So you have no idea how she got up in there. All you know, she's, where specifically in the truck was she lying when you saw her? Her head was on the, pointed towards the driver's side, and her legs were down below. Okay, so um, on this, in the sleeper portion of the truck, she was lying on that bed back there? Yeah. Was she, she dressed? Any clothing on? No. Okay. Was there, you mentioned something about a bag. They had her clothes were there and they had a bag covering her head. And they told me it's my problem to take care of it. And they took the bag, put clothes in it, and left. This is the first time he begins telling us the actual story. He didn't tell us anything prior to the video being on. He talks about blood being everywhere. And every time he showed up, at a particular truck stop, these so-called suspects that he knew from Albion, Illinois, would show up, and they would kill somebody, and they would, for whatever reason, put put that victim in his truck and leave him the mess to clean up. That's that's literally what he told us. And he described several of the crime scenes. Uh, you know, the plastic bag over the head, the electrical tape around the neck, gunshot wound to the head, head area in the ear, around the head, but typically around the upper body, typically the head. So Pat continues to press Bruce for further details, playing along gently, without ever really indicating whether or not he's buying this whole story. And of course we know he's not believing a word this guy is saying. But Pat indulges him in this charade because he's telling Pat everything he needs to know. He's sharing all the information that only the killer could know. It's almost as good as a confession. truck stops here you described the girl you took her outside laid her down was there anything done to the girl here in nashville that you recall to her body that we need to know about that you that you remember seeing no nothing was done to her body that you recall i recall okay you don't recall anything uh, in, in terms of um uh, cutting or anything like that on her body no okay you don't recall them telling you anything if you think about it can you think about them Something about that. They said uh, she had a good tattoo. Now remember, Sarah Holbert's tattoo was cut from her body and taken as a flesh trophy. Okay. Okay. Uh, so she has a good tattoo. And what does that mean to you? Nothing. I was just pissed off and worried at the same time. Okay, I understand. But if I'm asking you about knives or cuttings, and then you tell me she had a good tattoo, what what what's the what's the what's the connection? I have no idea. What do you think they did? All I know is I disposed of her. Where but if you had to do your job. Okay. Well, and and, and we're trying to do that. Um, what what do you think? The issue with the tattoo is, why do you think they would have told you about that? And oh, connected? smart asses. Do you think they did something with the tattoo? Is that what you're saying? I have no clue. They just said she has a good one. Okay. And did they, did they not describe it to you? No. Okay. You didn't see the tattoo? No. you recall seeing any tattoos on this girl? I didn't look. I mean, what, what do you recall about this tattoo? I just, they said she had a good one. Right. And all I did was pull her out and put her over there. Okay. That's all I did. Okay, but you, 
and I hate, to, I hate to beat on this point a little bit, but you said something about the tattoo after I said something about a knife and cutting. No, you said anything, just they said distinctive, not that just about she had a good tattoo. Okay. But that's all you know about the tattoo? That's it, what okay. they said. Okay. He, he collected a, uh, he cut out a tattoo on, on all victim Sarah Holbert's uh, uh, buttocks. He cut, he cut out, I mean, a giant plug out of, out of, out of her uh, buttocks, and he kept it. Um, you know, we've never did learn what he did with it. We never learned anything about it uh, in terms of why he would cut something like that out, because obviously that's something you can't keep with you. So it's some sort of a flesh souvenir. Um, we don't know of any other victims so far that, that he's done this to. For some reason, he did it to our victim. Some of the other victims that he was involved in, they were also tattoos. He never touched those tattoos. For some reason, he felt intrigued by this particular tattoo. It happened to be a set of lips. Maybe that had something to do with it. Um, he, you know, I do know that we had the Illinois State Police do a search on his house, and nothing along those lines was found. And, of course, a search on his truck, nothing inside of his truck. So whatever he did with that um, souvenir that he cut out of... Uh, cut off of Sarah's body, he, he disposed of it somehow, we just don't know how. He went through each and every crime scene, he, he described each one, I mean he laid it out for us, he gave us the whole story, with the exception of he's the actual killer, and when I began to close, close the circle a little bit and push him into, you know, oh, now that you gave us all the detail of all these crime scenes, I said maybe, maybe these guys you're talking about really had nothing to do with this, maybe it's you, maybe you're the killer. But we're, we're talking at least of at least five homicides that you're aware of. Yeah. Did you ever think about going to the police and saying, Yeah, I thought about it. Okay. Right. Did you they get the They threatened my kids. Are you telling us that, that these other guys are involved because these other guys are involved, or are you telling us that these other guys may be involved, but they really don't exist, but it's something that maybe you're trying to use to convince us that it's another situation going on when, 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 when maybe when maybe you're, you're the one in the middle of all this. I am in the middle of it. Well, there's no question about that. No question about that. You provided a lot of detail for us. But if you're the one, and these guys really don't meet you at every truck stop, and then there's a homicide, and if these guys are not involved, then there's no need in dragging them into it or bringing anybody inside in of this unless it's true and if it's not true and if it is just Bruce Mendenhall then that's what it is. So they showing up at these truck stops and when they show up people die. What we're trying to determine is whether you're trying to put the blame somewhere Bruce when, when really maybe it's you because you indicated earlier that you wanted to, to, to tell it. Yeah I wanted to tell. Right. Because they threatened my kids, doesn't Okay, but, but we're getting away from that. We're getting away, and, and I agree, they probably did threaten your kids. We're talking about the, these victims here, strictly about these victims. And, if, yeah. if, and if, you, if you lost control of your emotions and something occurred and you ended up killing these girls over the last several months, then that's what it is. That's all we're asking you to do is just tell us about that. And if that's what happened, Bruce, tell us that's what that happened. Is so but you have to agree if, if somebody's going to argue that Bruce had <coughs> blood under his fingernails. Yeah. It's going to look a little suspicious, don't you agree? Yeah. And the DNA on your fingernail is going to come back to the girl from Indianapolis, don't you agree? Oh, yeah. And it's probably, I'm going to guess, DNA in your truck to come back to every single victim that you've described. You agree with that? 
Probably. And if it's something that, that Bruce Mendenhall got himself caught up in and got involved in that, then that's what we'll deal with. We, we mean specifically whether you actually did the killing. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and, and if you did, Bruce, then we're not going to treat you any different now than if you tell us that you're the one that actually did it. And these guys, even though they were mean and nasty to your family, they really had nothing to do with the homicides. If you're the guy that did these Give me all over here. You want a lawyer? Sure. It's over. We're going to, it's about 14.55 according to Lee's watch. That'll conclude the interview of Bruce Mendenhall. I knew he was teetering on an attorney, so I had to be real careful, which is why I got all the detail out first before I began to accuse him of it. And once I began to go down that road, he asked for an attorney. So I think the interview was maybe an hour, a little bit longer than an hour. We had all the detail we needed, with the exception of him admitting to being the killer. And um, he stopped the interview. We asked for an attorney, and that was the end of the interview. So news of Bruce's arrest starts to spread, not only through news, not only through law enforcement agencies and around the country, but also, of course, to the families of his victims. And it wasn't long until the news reached Sarah Holbert's sister, Roxy. We knew that they were going to um, back to the truck stop to interview um, someone from the night shift that they hadn't had the opportunity to interview because of the the different time schedules and, and things to that nature. And um, lo and behold, the suspected uh, person pulls back up. So it was their lucky day. And we felt uh, we felt like that uh, that day that uh, our mom and grandmother and grandfather and aunts and uncles and Sarah, the people in heaven were pushing and pulling and and making sure that uh, Detective Pastiglione and Detective Freeman were in the right place at the right time <laughs> and bring in, you know, bring in justice uh, to her and to all the other women that he had taken. And of course, while there is relief and joy in the capture of this perpetrator, the next feeling is wanting to know more. What happened to Sarah? A mixture of emotions. We were um, very, very saddened and and disheartened because, you know, um, we wanted to know then, you know, did she suffer? Was he mean to her? You know, what kind of things did did, uh, she have to endure? Um, by herself without, you know, anyone being there with her. Uh, did she, did she feel alone? You know, did she feel the warmth of, of, um, all of us, you know, trying to stay with her and, and watch over her, you know, was our, was our mom there guiding her and, and things to that nature. It was just so many questions, you know, um, so many, um, so many emotions and and just not knowing and not not understanding and um like i said you know this it was like a fairy tale it was like no this can't be real this this has got to be a bad dream you know you've we're gonna wake up and and oh it was a mistake you know no that's not really what happened or or you know she uh, they they mistook her for someone else So as word of Bruce's capture spreads, everyone starts taking a good hard look at this suspect. Outside, of course, of his double life as a truck stop serial killer. Who exactly is Bruce Mendenhall? 
So according to a 1997 story in what was then called the Albion Journal Register, Mendenhall was a Vietnam veteran who married his late wife, Linda, in 1981. At the time of his arrest, Bruce Mendenhall was married, had two daughters that were in their 20s. They all lived in Albion, Illinois, which is a farm town with a population of 1,846, which is where Mendenhall ran for mayor of the town in 1997, a race that he thankfully lost. And according to the Courier Press, Bruce Mendenhall frequently shunned neighbors as he drove home in his semi, ignoring their friendly waves. And the Mendenhalls lived in a small one-story home in Albion, and their property was remote, rural, and surrounded by farms. And in various media reports, Albion locals described Mendenhall as being loud, hot-tempered, and peculiar, but they were still really stunned to hear police said that he had essentially confessed to killing six people. And Bruce was known to hang out at the local bowling alley and stayed out of trouble for the most part. The Chicago Tribune interviewed the local sheriff, who described him as, quote, a volatile character who demanded that deputies arrest anyone who quarreled with his daughters in school. But this is odd because his old boss, Dan Davis, called him, quote, the meekest, mildest person that you'd ever want to run across. He never lost his temper about anything. So this was very juxtaposing. So when we were researching Mendenhall, everybody always wants to know, what is the childhood like? What, what was their upbringing like? And it's ideal in most of the serial killer situations. We usually can find something out. Not so in this case. Not so, because I dug real deep to just see anything I could. So when I failed, I texted Pat to ask him if they had uncovered anything in either the, you know, preparing for the trial process or as they were investigating to see what they could see about this person. And what he said, this is a a direct quote from the text he sent me back two hours ago. Nothing jumping out as far as his childhood. I know there was two pairs of panties found in the trunk of his car. I had them examined for DNA and it came back to his family members, probably his daughter's. Not sure what that's about. No violent history, no arrests. I think he had one traffic ticket, but that's it. So another opportunity we have here to compare him against other serial killers, which is what everyone should do. I mean, they're looking for sort of trends in serial killer activity to see what sort of commonalities we can find. This guy had no criminal history and most have some, you know, um, to just have a traffic ticket's highly unusual. And then also to have your daughter's panties in your trunk, highly unusual. It's not a good sign for what kind of climate was in the Mendenhall household. In my personal opinion is that Bruce Mendenhall, um, his homicides were definitely sexually related. Now, whether the homicide in and of itself was a sexual thing for him, uh, that's debatable. I, I, I think there's research that indicates sometimes the killing in and of itself is a sexual thing for the, for the serial killer. In addition, um, these, these victims also um, were sexually assaulted uh, by Bruce Mendenhall. So, and they were kept in his truck sometimes for extended periods. So the theory there may be, why is he keeping him in his truck for extended periods? Um, there was a lot of sex, uh, sex toys and sex objects found inside of his vehicle. And the theory was that he was possibly, after the victims had been killed, he was possibly keeping them in his truck for sexual reasons. Most serial killers kill with their hands, and, and the reason is because they like that. They like the hands 
They like the, to be close, up close, touch the victim, grab the victim, and, and strangle the life out of the victim. That's that's part of their, their thrill. Um, if they can't strangle them, if they're not strong enough to do that, then they might use a knife. Um, my theory is with Bruce Mendenhall, um, his, the first homicide we had uh, involving him, he's 56 years old. So is it does it make sense that somebody begins turns into a serial killer at 56 years old. I mean, I guess it's possible, but, but doubtful. Any other serial killers that I'm familiar with, uh, they started in their 20s, sometimes in their teens, and they, they continue on, on up until they get caught or until they die. So in his case, um, possibly the reason he used a weapon, a rifle, is because he didn't have the strength to strangle the victims. He didn't have the strength to um, hurt the victims any other way than, than with, a hand, uh, in this case, a rifle. So after Bruce's arrest, a mountain of incriminating evidence is collected from inside Bruce's truck. Women's clothing and shoes all drenched in blood. And they find a collection of knives, they find the murder weapon, and a bag of sex toys, which is also covered in blood. All of the evidence from inside the cab of his yellow truck was processed. And a jaw-dropping revelation was made. The blood of at least eight women was found inside the cab and sleeper of this long-haul driver's truck, including that of Letitia Yvonne Milliken, who was reported missing on June 26th, which is the same day Sarah Holbert's body was found. Letitia's body has never been located, and of the eight DNA profiles, seven have been identified. So who does the other DNA profile in Mendenhall's truck belong to? That's one of the questions. And while his M.O. was pretty clear, investigators believe that his method of killing has likely changed over the years. And also, we're not suggesting that there is only one more potential victim that could be linked to Mendenhall. This is just based on the DNA that was found in his truck. And this is only one of the many trucks that he lived in and worked in over the course of 20 years as he worked as a truck driver going across the country until he was captured at the age of 56, which is, which is old. It's highly unlikely that this cluster of murders were his first, just given the sheer number of them and how comfortable he seemed in committing them. Well, another thing worth mentioning too is, is how unusual it is that he doesn't really seem to have a type. And you know, the victim, you know, the funny part here is there's no particular... Um, you know, victim like they're not all female whites or they're not all female blacks or black hair or blonde hair. They're all different. They're all different types: young, old, white, black. So I think his deal was um, they were in a truck stop, and I think he was attracted to that. Whatever that did, whatever that did to him, that's that's why he uh, he, he did what he did because they were females, because they were in truck stops. It apparently, it didn't matter whether the victim was white, whether the victim was black whether the victim was young, whether the victim was old. Apparently, that didn't matter. So beyond the murders we already know Bruce Mendenhall is responsible for, he's also suspected of being responsible for killing. Number one, Tammy Zwicky, a student who was found stabbed to death on September 2nd of 1992. She vanished from the Interstate 80 near LaSalle, Illinois, nine days before her body was discovered after dropping off her brother at Northwestern University. Tammy had last been seen with her car, at mile marker 83 in central Illinois. A long-haul trucker was seen near Tammy's vehicle when she was spotted. Okay, so that's interesting. Some of her property was missing, including a Canon 35 millimeter camera, 
a musical wristwatch with an umbrella on the face. Then there's Andrea Hendricks Steinert, who was found October 1997, Francisco, Indiana. A highway worker spotted her nude body in a ditch, and she had been strangled and placed in another location post-mortem. And then there's Tanya Estep, missing since 2006 from a truck stop at Dickerson Road Truck Stop in Tennessee. Then there's Belinda Cartwright and Robin Bishop. Each were run over at truck stops in the early 2000s. A composite police sketch made of the suspect in Belinda's case bears a striking resemblance to Mendenhall. The list goes on and on. And even though these two women were run over by trucks, as we said earlier, He's 56 years old. He has very likely been honing. You know, you start with thrill kills. Like, I'm just going to hit this woman and see if anyone does anything. The answer is nothing happened to him. So he escalates. He gets more bold. I mean, and you have to look at how bold he was in placing Sarah's body out there in the open like that. You know what I mean? Like, he's just never thought. I mean, he's been doing this probably for 35 years. Yeah. So he's just emboldened. So if you think Bruce's urges to cause pain and suffering tapered off while he was in jail, you would be wrong. Because while he was in jail awaiting trial on the Sarah Holbert case, Bruce's cellmate came forward with some information about some of the conversations that Bruce had attempted to engage him in. So it turns out that while Bruce Mendenhall was in jail, his wife ended up dying of natural causes and he came upon some insurance money. So he separately approached two different inmates with offers to pay them both 15 grand to murder the three truckers that he originally had blamed the murders on in his statement to the police. So Bruce had also been actively searching for a hitman that he could hire to murder Pat and also Detective Lee Freeman in an attempt to eliminate them as testifying witnesses. And in fact, one of the murders was meant to be performed as like a copycat fashion in an attempt to thwart the case against him and make people believe that the killer was still at large. So law enforcement orchestrated a sting operation and they ended up wiring up an inmate and recorded him and Bruce's conversation. Bruce ended up being prosecuted for these crimes and was given 30 years for conspiracy to commit murder. As the trial uh, was unfolding, we learned um, more things about Mendenhall, who he was, um, what he did for a living, uh, where he lived, um, you know, what kind of family he had, what kind of life he had. Sarah wasn't his only victim. Um, we were hoping and praying that she was the last. Um, we wanted just to make sure that he would never see the light of day and never have the opportunity to get out and, and hurt anyone else again. Um, we were told that he was in bad health, that he probably wouldn't stay in trial, um, that he would probably, you know, die um, in prison before we could ever really truly have justice. Um, and unfortunately, for some reason, he's still here, breathing and kicking and enjoying life, which we don't necessarily think that that's fair, but that's not our choice. So Bruce was ultimately convicted in the murder of Sarah Holbert and given life plus an additional 30 years on the attempted murder for hire charges. Mendenhall was later tried and convicted for killing Samantha Winters and given another life sentence. And there are plans for him to eventually stand trial for the three other killings he committed in Alabama and Indiana. As far as the number of crimes that could be attributed to this person, 
we're at the the tip of the iceberg. Given the fact that he's been trucking for 25 years, he might be much more prolific than we understand. So we have to look at just June and July themselves. We've got um, Samantha Winters. We've got Sarah Holbert. We've got Lucille Carter. We've got Karma Papura in less than six weeks. And that's just what we know. I wouldn't be surprised if if over the years, more and more are attributed to him because he is just so apathetic. We played a lot of his interrogation for you guys. He's so indifferent about it, you know, and he was so casual about it. There's just no way there aren't many, many, many more victims. Yeah, and you have to wonder, too, the other trucks that he had, and I'm sure this has gone through, but, you know, these guys change trucks, you know, you know, like the same way that you change cars. So every five or six years, you're going to change one even even quicker because they're, they're driving so much. Where are those trucks now? Are they are they already been wrecked? Is somebody driving around one of his old ones? I mean, and is there potentially any evidence inside there? It seems like that's the only without him making a confession. It seems like that's the only place to go. When you look dead into his eyes, uh, I mean, it's really uh I don't know what that what the wording is, but it's uh, blank. I mean, there's really nothing there. So there's no emotion. You know, they, they, he, he doesn't. He may not have any real true emotion. Um, you know, because they say sociopaths and psychopaths, they're incapable in many cases of emotion. They're incapable of love, that kind of thing. So, I mean, when, when I look in his eyes, you know, you, you, you see nothing. I mean, there's nothing there. Just darkness. You know, and I've noticed with other serial killers that I've dealt with, it's that same look. Um, it's a blank look. It's an empty look. You know, it's. Um, you know, they, they, they may try to fake it, maybe. But if you've done this job long enough, you can see through that. And you can see. But Amendment Hall was no exception. Anytime during trial, during the interview with him, uh, anytime he sat in court and leaned over and turned his head and looked at me or whatever the case may be, uh, I had that same look. He never deviated from that look. We were very grateful for uh, Bastiglione um, and his expertise and, and just his diligence. He... Um, we also like to think that, you know, angels were watching over her and, and making sure that uh, they were seeing all the clues that they need to see and talking to all the people that they needed to talk to and just his hard work and dedication and everything is, is um, so touching to our family. And we cannot thank him enough for uh, the closure he was able to provide to us for his hard work. You know, catching a serial killer is, you know, is, is many times difficult. And, and I was at the right place at the right time, and I was able to catch a serial killer because I believe the day I got him, July the 12th, um, he was circling the block. And the reason why he was circling the block that day was he was looking for another victim. Luckily, there were none out that day. Um, he didn't pick up anybody. So he circled the block and he went into the truck stop. So so I believe, I, I mean, we, we practically caught him in the act. Unfortunately for Karma for Pura, he had killed her. We got him on the 12th. Unfortunately for her, she was killed on, on the night of the 11th. Um, you know, we, we, unfortunately, we couldn't save her life. But, but I do firmly believe that Bruce Mendenhall has not hurt or killed anybody since July the 12th, 2007. And I, I do feel like out on the streets, you know, uh, the girls at the truck stops, I, 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 what, I, I think what makes me feel the best is that I, I do firmly believe that we saved some lives out there. I really do. I would like everyone to know that um, Sarah was an amazing young woman. She was an amazing mother. She was an amazing sister. Um, 
Um, yes, she struggled. She had her struggles. Um, don't give up on, you know, don't, don't give up on, on your friends and, and loved ones that are on the dark side, you know, help them as much as you possibly can. Just continuously reassure them that, you know, this is something that they can overcome. They're better than that. They're stronger than that. Um, that she's truly, truly, truly missed. so much to Roxy for sharing her story with us. And thank you, Detective Pat Pistiglione, my favorite detective in the world, for taking us through this entire ordeal. It's a big deal to catch a serial killer and to be crawling into his truck and being face to face with this guy is really chilling. But if you want to know more about this case, there's an excellent opportunity tonight. Today is Wednesday, April 22nd. And if you're listening to this, the day it's coming out. Deadly Recall Pat's series which is airing on Investigation Discovery tonight at 10, 9 Central, he will be covering this case on Deadly Recall. So if you want to see what Bruce Mendenhall looks like, do you want to see what all the people, the scene, crime scene photos, it will all be on the series tonight. So don't miss it. All right. Well, if you have a first degree connection and a story you'd like to tell us, please email us. Hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Fanick. Join our Facebook group. Search the first degree in the Facebook search bar. And we're talking all true crime all the time. And again, we're going to do a little art show. So send us all your art, whether that be cocktails or drawings or cross stitch or poems throw it all at us give us new owl poem and uh <laughs> stick around because we're gonna kill some time and remember only you can prevent serial killers and the coronavirus and keep your friends close but but not that close and at least six feet away God damn listen it. guys it's never gonna align we're just gonna lean into that we're keep, leaning in. keep your friends close not the close whatever it is six, six feet, feet away, away everyone close in your heart be responsible emotionally exactly yeah happy um happy girl scout national chemist day and girl scout leader day i took french in high school and i was so excited that we were going to france for jack's wedding so i could practice my french and it was only when i got there i realized just how rusty i'd gotten and i wanted to communicate in french with the locals there so badly if you can relate to this experience then rosetta stone is right for you Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You can choose from one of 25 languages like Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a quick and natural way. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Rosetta Stone is so convenient, and it can be used on your desktop computer or as an app, with audio companion and ability to download lessons offline. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. 
Visit rosettastone.com slash first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash first today. So if you're a super busy person and you don't have time to go to the gym, or maybe you just don't even want to go to the gym and work out in front of a bunch of different people, you need to check out the Aloe Moves app. I'm obsessed with this app. So it makes it easy to keep your wellness routine on track because they have everything in one place. There's yoga, there's Pilates, fitness classes, mindfulness, self-care tips, healthy recipes, and so much more. So either you're a beginner or you're an advanced person, Aloe Moves has the flow or class that will fit your schedule. Their classes range from five minutes to an hour, depending depending on what you're feeling that day. So even if you only have five minutes, you can just get some movement in. I used Aloe Moves all during the pandemic. It was amazing. Like I was on my yoga journey and I was obsessed with it. So you can find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and journaling for those quiet moments, even if you don't really want to get a workout on. And when it comes to sleep, it's just important as fitness and nutrition, and they've got you covered with Aloe Moves. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Aloe Moves. Go to Aloe Moves com and use code first for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's allomoves.com, code first, A-L-O-M-O-V-E-S.com, code first. All right. Well, welcome to Killing Time. You know what? I'm just going to bring this up now that Alexis's mic right now is a catastrophe. And we need to talk about this before we actually get into Killing Time uh, content. Do you want to explain what's going on? Alexis, do I? Yes. Does Alexis want to explain? Okay. Yes. So we have these mics that we're recording remotely with. And while the the mic itself is great it yes. comes with like a vice that hooks on that that clamps your desk and then it has sort of an arm that you adjust for the mic to go right just so to your mouth <laughs> and mine just will not stay so I had to tape it up with scotch tape and then then blue painters tape and they were heckling me saying this wasn't the right kind of tape but well it seems to be working just fine <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll see how this goes. We do sometimes record killing time before the actual episodes. We have just started her day. So we'll see what happens throughout the, you know, the whole night as it goes on. But we did say duct tape, Alexis, right? right. I don't have that. Or, or gaffer's tape, considering I have, that I don't have that. Alexis I just works have, in television. I just have um, painter's tape scotch and scotch tape. tape. <laughs> <laughs> it looks so fucked up. I know. I'll fix this. Don't worry. This is just a temporary situation. Desperate times, guys. We're isolated. We're separated. We're sad. Sad Sad-gated. Yeah, we are. Um, So what are we going to do for killing time, Alexis? So I think this will be a very easy topic to riff off of because we just came out of that crazy episode about a serial killer that not that many people know about. Before I worked on the show about that story, I had no idea who Bruce Mendenhall was. And I just think there are a million ways to go with this sort of serial killer discussion. And we could start with sort of a lighter subject matter given what we just came off of in the show. But 
I don't know, when I first got into true crime, I was just scared of serial killers. And I was scared of sort of the quintessential serial killer archetype. Like you're going to get abducted from a mall. You're going to get abducted from here or there or someone will see you on the side of the road. And it is a thing. But like what, when you guys think about serial killers, what is it that you, that resonates? Well, I think what are you scared of? What are you fascinated by? The whole archetype is, is so based upon Ted Bundy, I feel like, especially as a woman, it's like, we always think about that being abducted from, from a mall or a parking lot or, you know, a dark alleyway or something like that. Um, I had an instance when I was a kid that my cousin shoplifted a thong from JCPenney. Have I ever told you the story, Alexis? No, but do you know that I shoplifted thongs from JCPenney along in the Smith Haven Mall and I got caught when I was like 12 and I never I'm stole old. again? Yes. So we were, <laughs> we were around like 12 or 13. I was like an angel child. My cousin was a little bit of a wild child and she was the one that she was shoplifting because that's the age that everybody shoplifted everything from the mall everything so she shoplifted some thongs well you're testing sort of your you're testing your sort of moral compass at that age you're sort of feeling like what this feels like and that feels like and you know it's it's probably the biggest thrill that you're gonna have if you're not drinking or doing drugs as a preteen or having sex or whatever so she stole all this shit the mall cop comes and gets her and he looks in her bag, finds the thongs. And he's like, you have to come with me. So he pulls her away and he goes to me, you have to come too. And I fucking freaked out. And I was like screaming. I was like, I'm not going anywhere with you. My mom said not to talk to strangers. And I run out of the mall screaming and crying because I mean, I was taught by my parents. Don't ever talk to strangers. Don't get in a van. Don't go anywhere. When somebody asks you, that says that they have candy or whatever and then the mall cop ended up telling me or my mom she was like your daughter fucking freaked out and like overreacted and she's like nope she did nope. exactly what i told exactly. her to do because that's an mo i mean think about bundy yeah. bundy actually used that sort of mo the person wasn't doing anything wrong mall but cop. he went to a person in a mall and said and went to a woman in a mall and said somebody broke into your car um yeah. come outside and then takes her you know in his in his super duper police car which was a freaking volkswagen bug right and you know that's that's a lore because when you're if you're 12 years old i mean and i'm sure there are guys that are walking around places that that are like that and particularly probably in the 70s and 80s that are walking around stores looking for for girls that are stealing stuff and because as soon as they get caught they're going to do anything they're going to freeze yep. up and they're going to do anything they're going to go anywhere in order to get this eradicated and they could be put in really awful awful situation well i think just as human nature you're going to you know listen to authority most of us will so that is just the easiest way for somebody to automatically have control over somebody else especially i mean when I was talking about my situation, like as a child, like, of course you're going to anybody that says that they're a cop or a, a, a firefighter mm-hmm. or anything, you're, you're going to, you're basically going to listen to any adult. So, yeah. And, and you know, the biggest, you know, talking about malls, uh, you know, as a kid, the biggest story that we had was the story of Adam Walsh. And it's yeah. probably one of the biggest stories that anybody's had. He was in a Sears uh, he went to go look at video, like video games, which were new at the time. And he went to go look at video games and who knows who took him. Some people say it's out his tools, some people say it's whatever, but 
they, they who knows how they said it, how they said how they how they separated him from probably a bunch of kids who were looking at this video game console and then and then were were able to get him out of the store. It very well could have been that. So I think the idea of also like when we were talking about to go back to what you're originally saying, Jack, about being in a mall and and, and being you know targeted. Uh, the Bundy archetype and also, you know, the Adam Walsh archetype. I think that's the things that that have sunk in w- with us, and particularly with you guys, which you're women and you're being preyed upon constantly, even by people that don't necessarily even want to kill you. They're just consistently just preying just on you. Unsolicited dick pics all over the place, you know. <laughs> it's even more basic than that because I, I'll tell you, I will not go take my trash out. I'd rather take it out at night. Because during the day, if I go take my crash out, people fucking honk and yell. Because it's like I have to go outside my building. And it's like every... Women just are exposed to this. And we normalize it where it changes your life. so much. It changes your life where it's like, I won't go... I've never been running publicly because it's like people... When I say they stop and yell, they'll pull their car over to say something as close to you as they possibly can. And it's just... It's uh, such predatory behavior, even if it's just to, it's like a power thing. It's like, I'm going to pull over. I'm going to yell at you. You might get scared, but I want to, I want to say what I want to say. And it's sort of this very strange thing that women have normalized because we're just so used to it since we're, they've been doing it since you're 10. Like that's the thing that's yeah, fucked I mean, up. It, it starts really young for girls. Yeah. And it's normalized so much to the point that, I mean, we barely even talk about it. if something creepy or weird happens to us i don't even know if i would tell my best friend you about it because it's just a, such a normal occurrence that it's not even really worth mentioning as like a weird thing that happened to you during the day it's such a normal just oh another especially being in hollywood i feel like we get a lot more of it than maybe people that live in suburbia as like a you know a daily well, not mm-hmm. anymore yeah. that we're like stuck in our houses, but when right. we're out and about and doing errands and stuff, running into people like that, that maybe make you feel uncomfortable. But it's like, yeah. I mean, Billy, yeah. you walk me to my car every time we record at uh, Alexis's yep. house, even when my car is literally parked directly outside of her apartment. <laughs> you will not let me walk to my car it, it's alone. And in Hollywood, the you know the only time, and I've been thinking about this with the when people are you know we're going to have to start wearing masks, and we're doing it in LA, but we're going to start doing it everywhere. Um, the idea of, of, and me and Alexis have talked about this when I was getting ready to write this Joker essay for DC comics, the idea of, of asking a woman to smile. No, and, I'm sorry. We didn't talk about this when you were telling me you were writing this. I was like, you know, it would be an interesting thing to bring up in your essay is how men tell women to smile all the time on the street. <laughs> and then we Billy put it in his about. essay oh. and suddenly now I did. It's, it's, his <laughs> it's his idea that we talked about. I just, <laughs> and I was like, are you going to do yes. that? And he's like, man, man you're taking credit for a woman's credit work, you know, work. just another day. So, <laughs> Billy, why so, don't you rephrase how that really went down? Just if humor me so i was i was writing about a uh, uh i was offered to write about the joker for dc comics from a true crime perspective and i asked alexis and i was going to sort of write about uh black dahlia and the joker because there were some uh similarities with some of the pop culture things for for black dahlia and the joker and then alexis brought up that you know there's always this thing about men asking women to smile constantly and how is that going to work in the age of coronavirus where everyone's wearing masks. Has Everyone anybody smiles with their eyes. 
Smize with Everybody their eyes. Everybody has to work oh. on their smile. You know, we got to go throwback to America's Next Top Model, whatever season that she always talks about smizing and like take some tips. Smile with your eyes. I'm just, I or, mean, not that I ever wear wings. makeup, yeah. but like you really don't have to do anything anymore with a mask on. Just a little eye makeup, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's it. It's not really, it's not the asking to smile that bothers me. I think I've had a few instances where that's happened and I said no. And then the guy's aggressive. Like you're there, like they're like, well, right. fuck you then, bitch. And it's like, oh, I'm here for you. I have to be in a good mood to please you. Like, because aesthetically, this isn't my my neutral like indifference towards you isn't flying like it's it's just this very offensive notion that you are there for them it's kind of the same thing when i used to be on dating apps and some guy you know would message you something like oh hey what's going on or something very like innocuous whatever and then if you don't respond then it's like oh you're a fucking slut like blah blah it's the same thing where there's like this defense coming in where if you don't respond or act in a certain way that someone wants you to now you're the fucking bitch or you're whatever and it's like we're not we don't have to be doing anything for anyone else and no we don't owe anyone anything period what men women it's like everybody's sort of an independent operator and the fact that i don't know it's it's such old school shit too because like grand harmless grandpas say why don't you smile it's like what they know yeah. how to say you know and it's i'll let it slide with an old guy because listen you also call people broads and no one cared and this and that things have changed a lot and um, a lot of I'll worse that, things than that if you're over 75 i'll let it slide <laughs> just to not get in a heated argument with a senior citizen but um <laughs> other than that no everyone else should know better <laughs> They really should. Right, Billy? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> and considering I'm turning 75 I mean, next year. I mean, you're basically 75. I, uh, yeah, I'm basically 75. You're so. really ahead of, you're, you're ahead of the curve. You're good. Yeah. It's true. Well, All right, what well, about one more serial killer? I mean, any more serial? I mean, we kind of deviated, but that was the point. I mean, this is where it all... It's a serial killer conversation at all. It, I think it's a very important, uh, interesting point. Yeah. Right. Okay, there you, know you go. What, uh, you know what? Last podcast on the left has a new book out called Last Book on the Left. It's all about serial killers. So you can go get that. It's really good. <laughs> not an ad. Oh, did you get paid for this plug? Not an ad. I did not. <laughs> I bet it, you know what? I bet he but did I love get those paid. Guys. And he's I just like he slightly putting it in right here. I want 30%, 33% of this, please. Of whatever I got? Okay, you got it. The check will be in the mail, which is nothing because I just like those guys. Okay. <laughs> I love them too, actually. I need to, I haven't listened to them in a while. I need to, Alexis, stop interest. fucking got, with your mic. Sorry. You got to spark up, spark up Spotify. Sorry. No, I lost interest in last podcast because there are too many impressions. It got too sort of muddled with the humor in a way that I couldn't even follow the story, but I, I did like them for a long time. I listened to everything, but now I, I like a more straightforward story. I like a, like a crime junkie sword and scale vibe instead. To be honest, I'm surprised that you <laughs> ever liked last podcast on the left because they they have way too much toilet humor for you. I am also surprised by it, but I think you loved it. And I was like, I'm here for Jack. So we're going to like this together. And it didn't work. I just think that, I mean, they're one of the most researched podcasts and smart trio of humans that I've ever listened to. And I love like a super, super intelligent nerd. So that's why I feel like I really thrived listening to their podcast. They're three fucking smart nerds. I agree. 
I hope people describe us like that, but that's probably not what happens. Absolutely not. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll take what we can get. We don't need to be that. Uh, should we call it? Whatever it is. Yeah, let's call it. Let's call okay. it. Time of death, 1508. Beep, beep. Ooh, boop, 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 boop. Bye. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.